All right, well, good morning, church. All right, we're in Genesis chapter 38 this morning. And uh, there is some controversial subject matter in this chapter, to say the least. Let me just bring that down a little bit. I think it's easy to say that the events in this chapter uh, could be a little unsettling. Uh, I mean, we've had previous chapters that have unfolded like, you know, soap operas. And uh, this one unfolds that way as well, but maybe a little more of an adult soap opera. Uh, I almost feel like this message should have a, you know, a parental advisory message, a warning flashing on the screen before we do it. Uh, you know, or maybe we should rate it or something, but I promise not to be explicit. If you look at many commentaries over this chapter on Genesis chapter 38, you're going to find that most commentaries are short, which means the commentator keeps it to like a page or two. And uh, I mean, they're short and concise, but they're also evasive in the sense that uh, the commentator did his best to avoid any hot topics. He didn't really want to touch on the stuff that most people have questions about when they read through this chapter. I myself... When going back through my notes, for the first time I taught through Genesis back in 2007 or around there, whenever it was I taught through it, I found I have no notes for this chapter. None. Which means I possibly could have avoided it the very first time I went through it as well. Probably thought, I'm not touching this chapter, and let's just move on to the next one. But, I'm not sure. But So let's read chapter, Genesis chapter 38. We're going to read the whole chapter. Chapter 38, it says, It happened at the time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adolamite whose name was Hira. And there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. And she conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. And Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. And then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother." And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. And then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw, saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. And when Judah saw her, he thought that she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. And he turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. 
And then she arose and went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of her widowhood. And when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at the Anaim, who was at Anaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. And about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let, us, let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. And when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and I thank you. Uh, that your word is powerful and is strong and it speaks to us even in the midst of chapters like this, which sometimes can be considered confusing and, and strange and people don't exactly know what it's there for. But we pray, Lord, that your word, uh, that your spirit just speak to us, just draws close to you, Lord, for the message that you have for us this morning. And I thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. These events seem to interrupt the story of Joseph. I mean, we just last week got introduced to Joseph and you know it left us at a cliffhanger as his brothers sold him into slavery and you were thinking all right let's continue on with the story and then that story we we stop for this picture of Judah and uh, what's going on here and so now a lot of people are like what is this chapter here for I mean we know stories aren't told in chronological order necessarily sometimes they'll tell you something up here that actually happened back here just so they don't put it in the midst of what's going to happen next to confuse you. But here they, they've taken this story and thrown it right in the middle of the story of Joseph for a purpose. Right? Moses had a reason that he stuck it right here. The Holy Spirit had a reason to have Moses stick it right here. Right? Well, some say that the story's here just for historical purposes. Okay? It's just here because, of course, we're talking about Judah. And Judah, of course, will be the, the, the kingly, the royal tribe. Right, and so, and of course, you know, you get King David from that, and of course, eventually, it leads to the line of the tribe of Judah, Messiah, Christ Jesus, and so anything related to Judah then is vital for us to understand, which is true. Okay, that is true, and and you also have to remember that Joseph was 17 years old when he was sold into slavery. He was 30 years old when he started serving Pharaoh the king, which is just three chapters from now, by the way. And he'll possibly, and he's possibly 39 when he's reconciled to his family and his father in Genesis 46. And so, in those 22 years, obviously, a lot happens. In this chapter, one thing that this chapter does is it gives us a picture of the life of Judah, and in that, the only picture we see of Joseph's family during these years, before they venture on down into Egypt to get grain during the famine. And so if you add up the math, of course, you know, just of what we read here in the chapter, Judah gets married, Judah has three kids, two of those kids are now old enough, they've grown up and they're old enough to be married, not the third yet, but then Judah himself gets Tamar pregnant and she has twins, so how many years is that, right? 
uh, how about we guess 22? Right? 22 years, which just so happens to also be pretty much the timeline between when they sold Joseph into slavery and when they meet Joseph again later, when they're reconciled. But so yes, in that sense, there is a historical record there for us to help keep a time frame of events. But that's not the only reason why this chapter is here, right? Now, if you take this chapter, chapter 38, and you pair it with chapter 39, you have a great teaching. Right? We're not doing it that way, but you could think of this chapter as part one and chapter 39 as part two on about how to for how to us as believers and how we should approach sexual immorality and how we should basically run from sexual immorality. And the contrast that we see between Judah, who did not do that, and Joseph, who is going to do that, is a, is a starking contrast. And when you want to know why possibly Jacob loved Joseph more than the rest of the brothers, well, here's a good picture for you. You can see it when you contrast these two chapters. So that's another reason why the chapter could possibly be here. So if you think the chapter seems out of place, I understand completely. However, it's not out of place. As it tells us right in verse 1, it happened at that time, which means it happened at the time of Joseph. It happened right, it, this happened right around the time, or right after the time that they sold Joseph into slavery. So it's not out of place, and it has a purpose. And I don't need to recount the whole story for you. But of course, we understand exactly what's going on. Now, it seems that Judah was affected by the fact that they sold Joseph into slavery. Remember, Judah is the one that spared his life. Judah is the one that conned, the, conned, but got his brothers not to kill him. Okay, like he's what are we going to profit by killing him? Let's get some, you know, let's at least sell him and get some money for him. So, but I think that you know, and I'm sure it affected all the brothers, but it seems to affect Judah more because Judah is the one who leaves. Judah takes takes a leave of absence from his family. And from his brothers, and he doesn't go very far away, but he goes, you know, eight to ten miles to the northwest of, of Mamre, where they're hanging out, and he and he goes into this this area here, uh, and possibly he's dealing with, you know, guilt and his emotions of, of so selling his brother into slavery and just how that's affected him. Possibly it's affected him more than we even understand, right? So so he and he befriends this man named Hira. So he goes about eight to ten miles away to the northwest of where his family and his brothers are, and he befriends this man named Hira. And then he also meets this beautiful young lady, right? A Canaanite, daughter of a Canaanite. And he marries her. He marries her in a sort of a casual sex one-night stand sort of way. Right? I mean, this wasn't the normal customary procedure for marriage. Right? The father or a servant, remember, Abraham sent a servant to go find a bride for Isaac. The servant comes and brings, you know, sets up the, the rules for the dowry and, and everything like that. <clears throat> even remember, even the Canaanites have rules about marriage. Because if you remember, when uh, Shechem's son raped Dinah, right, then he sent his father to go arrange for the marriage after the fact. So they even have rules about how marriages are, are meant um, to be handled and stuff like that. But they didn't follow any of these rules, any of these normal customary procedures. It just seems that it was more of a, you know, like I said, a casual sex, one night stand, boom, hey, we're married type of, a, type of event for them. So Judah and Shua just sleep together and they're married. And of course, this was Judah's first mistake. Well, this was his first mistake. Now he wasn't equally yoked with a Canaanite woman. And you can go all the way back to Abraham to understand 
it was important for the patriarchs to have their sons not marry into the surrounding pagan cultures. Okay? I mean, like I said, Abraham sent his servant back to his own people to find a bride for Isaac. I mean, Jacob went back to that same area. Isaac sent Jacob back to that same area to find a wife so that he would not marry a Canaanite woman. And remember, it was Esau who kept marrying the Canaanite women. He made, took two Canaanite brides, and then, of course, he married a daughter of Ishmael. And that did cause nothing but grief and made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So it was, a, it was very important for them not to marry into the Canaanite culture. So the very first thing, of course, that Judah does is goes and marries a Canaanite woman. So you would think, though, that this idea of how important this would have been passed down from father to son, etc. But Judah didn't seem to listen, didn't seem to care. <coughs> he probably didn't listen or care. It was probably both, right? So the Canaanites were a hedonistic culture. And what that really means is that they were a pleasure-seeking, self-indulgent culture. Polygamy was encouraged, Right? in the Canaanite culture. You had one wife to mother the children, you had another wife to do the books, you had one wife to keep the house clean, and you had multiple wives for sexual reasons. So they were a pleasure-seeking, self-indulgent culture. And it would seem that Judah started conforming then to their way of life and their culture instead of the one he came from. So Judah and Shua have three sons. The first one, he names, it's a Hebrew name, Er. The next two sons, she names, they're Canaanite names. I'm not going to say it was a problem for him to let his wife name the other two boys, but he wasn't there according to the, the scripture. But remember also Moses got in trouble for allowing his wife's paganistic beliefs, quote unquote, to affect the way that he was raising his children as well because he wouldn't uh, get them circumcised because she didn't want them circumcised. And the Lord sent an angel to kill Moses. But they worked that out, which was good for him. So anyway, so his sons are growing up and his oldest son, Er, the firstborn, is old enough to be married now. So Judah uh, finds him a son. Not a son, a wife, right? So he finds a wife for him, and her name is Tamar. However, not long after they got married, or maybe maybe even immediately after they got married, we don't really know. Er was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. This is the first problem people have with the chapter. Maybe the second, right? Depending on how they're reading it. A lot of people are wicked in the sight of the Lord. But whatever it was, we don't know what he did. Because what Er did is not told to us. What Onan did is. But what Er did is not told to us. But he was wicked in the sight of the Lord. It doesn't say how the Lord put him to death. It doesn't fill in the details. It just tells you he was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And wicked in the sight of the Lord could mean so many things. We don't know exactly what it is. Whatever it was, it brought judgment down on him. And the Lord put him to death. So then Judah tells Onan, okay, hey, son, you're up, right? You're the next in line, do your duty, right? This was the custom. If your brother dies, it was your responsibility as the next in line to carry on the family name in honor of your brother. So you would then marry, your, assuming you weren't married, you would then marry your brother's wife 
and you would have children with her, and then those children, at least the firstborn, would be considered your brother's child. They would even name the, the firstborn after the brother often, okay? And Onan could have refused, but there's this whole ceremony about if he had refused. Matter of fact, they would take him to the gate of the city. He would take off his shoe. He would hand his shoe to the, the woman. She would spit on him and the shoe and throw it back at him, and it would be dishonorable for him. And there was a whole this thing. So he's not going to refuse, trust me, because he doesn't want to be dishonored and shamed in front of the whole city. So he's not going to be refused. So he marries Tamar. And of course, this whole custom later would be made into law. Read Deuteronomy chapter uh, 25. But we see Onan is selfish. It says he, I mean, it, it tells us he doesn't mind the, the pleasure of marital sex, right? He doesn't mind fooling around with his wife, yet he's not going to give Tamar a child because he knew that wouldn't be considered his. It would be considered his brother's. The child would be named after his brother. He didn't want that. So he practices this old school form of birth control, and he spills his seed on the ground. The implication in the Hebrew is that this is how he did, th- th- did it ex- every single time they had sex together. It was purposeful. He had no intent of giving her children. None. He didn't mind the sex. He wasn't going to give her any kids. It was purposeful. Now, if he had loved his brother, if he had honored his father's wishes, didn't want to see his brother's wife, now his wife, be shamed, well, then you think that it wouldn't or shouldn't have been an issue for him. Yet, he wasn't willing to consummate the marriage in this way. He wouldn't give her a child. And it tells us that this was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. So now Judah has a problem. Two of his sons have been killed immediately after, well, maybe not immediately, but right after marrying Tamar, he has one son left who isn't old enough to be married yet. And he doesn't really want his third son to die. So he tells Tamar, hey, go back to your father's house, put on the garments of a widow, and when my son is old enough, I'll bring you to him and you can be married, but he's just lying to her. He has no intention of doing that. He has absolutely zero intention of bringing his third son to her. He doesn't want his third son to die as well. So, of course, the question that comes up is, why did the Lord kill him? What was so wicked in what they did that the Lord had to put him to death on the spot for the most part? I mean, we've, many chapters in the Bible, we've read about the Lord brings judgment down on a people or on a nation. And there's usually, some, you know, a reason that we can maybe somewhat understand, right? They were an incredibly paganistic culture. They worshiped false gods. They, you know, murdered children. You know, abortion was a big practice with a lot of paganistic cultures. And there's a lot of different sexually immoral things that the, that the nation might have done, right? So we can kind of be like, okay, we can, okay, yeah. The Lord wiped them out completely, I get it, kind of. But we don't know exactly what happened here with Aaron Owen, and we don't know exactly what was wicked in the sight of the Lord 
for the most part, specifically with air, but with Onan, we have a better picture. Now, if we use Onan as the example and then kind of look back and say, well, maybe air was doing somewhat of the same thing, possibly. Obviously, air, you know, wasn't worried about the child not having his name because it would have, so it wasn't that situation, but maybe air didn't like Tamar, maybe Air had no reason to even want to have sex with Tamar or consummate the marriage in that way. Maybe Air wasn't even interested in Tamar in any way. There's many different reasons. We don't know what they are. And one of the faults of this chapter when people teach you is, is that they, they want to take this and, and teach it as a class on sexual immorality. But that's actually not the context of the chapter. That's actually not what's being taught here. Was the, was the Canaanite culture sexually immoral? Yes. They were. Right? But that's not what's going on. So this scripture really has nothing to do with any sexual pra- uh, practice that would happen between a husband and a wife. You have to understand that they were a husband and a wife. This wasn't just some casual sexual affair. This wasn't you know, someone having an affair with someone else. This wasn't anything like that. These were husbands and wives. They were married, both of them. When Er was married to Tamar, or when Onan was married to Tamar, they were husband and wife, right? So this has nothing to do with any sexual practice that would happen between the two. Didn't have anything to do with any version of birth control, right, that they practiced or didn't practice, right? The context of this chapter has nothing to do with any of that of any kind. The Lord was not judging them for any sort of sexual act that they may have performed or not as a married couple. What this has to do with is Onan, for the most part. Let's just pick on him. Onan's lack of responsibility concerning his brother and his father's wishes, right? When his lack of respect towards his marriage. Right? The culture that they lived in had no respect for marriage. Okay, Understand, the Canaanite culture really had no respect for marriage. They really had no respect for women. Judah had sort of stepped into that culture and had started living in that culture and raised his sons in that culture. So they were being raised with a very lack of respect towards marriage and towards women. Right? God honors marriage. God honors marriage. Right? So when Onan desires to absolve himself of the responsibility of carrying on his brother's name, he was disrespecting God. He was rebelling against God. Right? He was being disobedient to God. So what this does have to do with is that with is with dishonor. It has to do with disobedience, right? Onan was disobedient to his father. He treated his marriage dishonorably, right? Probably Er was also very much the same way, I'm guessing. Disobedient to his father's wishes, disobedient, dishonorable to the marriage. Right? We don't know for sure. But whatever it was, God was not pleased. Why? Well, this was the line of Judah. And what did we just say about the line of Judah? The line of Judah is a kingly line, right? The line of Judah is, uh, is 
going to come, Judah, Jesus is going to come forth from the line of Judah. Right? And whether Onan knew it or not, whether Er knew it or not, their actions, however, whatever it was in their disobedience or their, their dishonor or their disrespect to their father's wishes or to the marriage or to their wife's wishes or whatever it was, whether they knew it or not, their actions by either not wanting to give her a child or, you know, or spilling his seed on the ground and refusing to get her pregnant, their actions were satanically and demonically inspired because it was the line of Judah. And Satan, though Satan is not all-knowing, right? He's not all-powerful. He's not all-present. He is not God. He does not have the attributes of God. But man, he is mischievous, right? And he has plans in effect to disrupt God's plan any way he can, right? And so Satan has been trying to disrupt God's plan since creation, and, he's been, and he always has something ready, some demonic plan to throw a wrench into the works of God's plan, or at least he thinks he is. You could, argue that, you could argue that Isaac, trying to give the blessing to Esau instead of Jacob, was demonically inspired. You could argue that Laban, deceiving Jacob into marrying Leah, was demonically inspired. But none of these things thwarted God. He would, you, know, you can't throw God a curveball. It may not have been God's plan for Judah's life to go off and marry a Canaanite woman. It may not have been God's will, right, for Judah's life to go marry into the surrounding pagan culture or to have three sons from, the, from this Canaanite woman. That may not have been God's plan, but it's not going to stop God's plan. I mean, it may not have been God's will, but it's not going to stop God's plan. He's going to use it, and he's going to use it for his glory. And it's a reminder to us, it's a reminder to us as for what it says in Ephesians 6, which is that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. That's what we wrestle against. That's what they're wrestling against right here. A satanic plan to stop the line of Judah from growing. Right? Judah, Judah sees his first son die, and then he sees his second son die. He stops the marriage to his third son. He says, oh, no, son's too young. Sorry, uh, you go back home. You go back home and live with your father, and when my son's old enough, I'm going to bring him to you in hopes that she'll forget about what's going on. He never really has to bring his third son to her. But, he, but you know, if none of his sons ever get married and none of his sons ever have children, the line of Judah stops right there. It stops right there. But of course, Tamar doesn't forget. It tells us in verse 12, in the course of time, right, as things went on. In verse 14, Tamar sees that Sheila was grown up, old enough to be married now, and yet she had not been given to him in marriage. She realizes that she was lied to, basically, by Judah, and that he wasn't going to fulfill his promise to her. None of this is Tamar's fault. Tamar is the innocent victim in all of this, really. It wasn't her fault that her husbands were killed. It wasn't her fault that Judah lied to her. None of this is really Tamar's fault. So what does she do? She dresses up like a prostitute. Prostitution was respected in the culture. I'm not trying to, you know, say, oh, it's great what she did. Her actions weren't very moral either, right? But prostitution was respected in the culture. Matter of fact, and this is a terrible thing to think of, but it was an obligatory custom that the women had to follow. 
And what I mean by that, it was kind of like jury duty. It's a terrible way to put it, but just so that you understand, if you were a woman living in, the, in this uh, Canaanite culture, it was your obligation to serve as a temple prostitute. So you had your, like, your little time of service because that was worship to your pagan gods. So you would go and serve your time as a temple prostitute. And so prostitution, that's just to tell you that prostitution was respected. So, so she puts on the veil. She dresses up like a prostitute. She sits at the city gates. She knows that Judah's going to be coming by. She knows that Shelah is old enough to be married to her now. She really wants what she was promised is what she wants. And now Judah, he comes, you know, he's off sheep shearing and having a final time. His wife has passed away. He seems to have gotten over it really quick. He's, you know, he's, he's, having a, he's hanging out with his friend, and they're coming into town, and he sees her at the gate. He doesn't know it's her. He doesn't know it's Tamar. He just sees a prostitute at the gate. And, of course, he, you know, he buys her services. What will you give me? I'm going to give you a young goat. Okay, but what will you give me until you pay me the young goat? All right, here, you know. She says, I'll take your signet and your cord and your staff. Okay, here you go. Have, have these three things, right? And then so after they get done, and she, she of course, takes off her prostitution outfit, <laughs> whatever, dresses up back like the widow, goes back home. She's pregnant now. Time passes, three months it tells us, passes. He actually did send a goat back to try and pay her. They couldn't find her. She had left. Right? He's like, whatever, drop it. We don't want to be a laughing stock of the, of the town or anything like that, so just drop it. I tried to pay her. You know I tried to pay her. I was doing the honorable thing, right? Yes, you were. Oh, yeah. Oh, so honorable Judah. Right? So three months goes by, and it comes to him. Hey, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, she's pregnant. She's pregnant by immorality. She, you, you know, you were supposed to, you were supposed to, she was supposed to marry your son, Shayla, but she slept with someone else, and now she's pregnant, right? And he's like, let's bring her out and burn her. Right? So righteously, self-indignant, right? Let's bring her out and burn her. Which was custom, you know, all these things, these customs, right? I mean, Judah had no issue sleeping with a prostitute himself, you know, he had no issues with his own morality or his own morals, right? But he's righteously indignant when he finds out that Tamar possibly slept with someone and she's pregnant. Oh, no, let's bring her out and burn her. She sends him the signet and the cord and the staff and says, this is the man whom I slept with, whom I conceived from. Do you know who he is? She's handling this great, by the way. I mean, she's, she's, she's not just coming out and saying, it was you. She's letting him understand who it is without shaming him in front of everybody. She sends it to him. He knows exactly what it means. He's like, oh. Which brings his response, of course, which is, she is more righteous than I. I didn't uphold my word. I didn't marry her to my son. I didn't fulfill my promises to her. She is more righteous than I am. And hopefully this was a turning point in the life of Judah, and possibly it was, that brought him, you know, changed his relationship with the Lord. 
I think that's one of the reasons we have this here, not only to see this picture of what's going on in the life of the sons of Jacob, Judah specifically, but also to see, you know, this is the kingly line, and, and Judah is not a very kingly person. He's not a very righteous person, but yet he thinks he is. And we get to see this picture of how his sins are laid before him, and he has nothing to do at that point except repent and admit that he screwed up. And hopefully this was a thing that turned him back to the Lord, changed his relationship with the God of his fathers, changed the way that line was going to be raised, the way his sons were going to be raised, the way their sons were going to be raised. So, here's the thing. What does this chapter have to do with? Well, like I said, everything we read in this chapter really has to do with disobedience. But it wasn't the disobedience of Judah's sons. The disobedience actually started with Judah. Okay? There is a temptation and maybe you understand this. There is a temptation to live like your neighbors instead of living like children of God. Judah should have been set apart from the culture. Instead, it would seem like he was engaged in the culture instead. When it says back in verse 1 that Judah turned aside, okay, He went down from his brothers and he turned aside. That word in the Hebrew, turned aside, it can mean bow down. It can mean pitched, as in he pitched his tent. An example of this would be Lot, who pitched his tent towards Sodom. It can mean incline or bend or pervert. And though I don't want to read too much into it, Judah left his father and his brothers and started bowing down, started bending his will, started inclining his judgment, or started perverting his thoughts towards what? Towards the Canaanite way of life. Not towards the godly way of doing things that he was being raised in by Jacob. Not towards God's word. In Jeremiah chapter 7, speaking of Israel, Israel runs into this problem all the time, the nation of Israel, right? God says they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backwards, not forwards. Judah's going backwards. This whole thing starts out in the very first verse with Judah going backwards in his relationship with the Lord, assuming he had a relationship with the Lord at all. In the Psalms, we're told more than once to incline our ear and our hearts, but to incline our ear and our hearts towards God, towards God's word, towards God's wisdom, towards his knowledge. When we do the opposite, when we incline our hearts towards our selfishness, when we incline our hearts towards our own personal pleasure, right? when we incline our hearts to do the evil to, you know, to the evil and the immoral culture in which we live, well, well then what's going to happen? We're going to start going backwards. Right? And this is what we see today. 
in the culture that we live in. It tells us in 2 Timothy 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 3, it says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Right? If you're looking for people to, to, to teachers to suit your own passions, what does that mean? Well, it means you become a pleasure-seeking, self-indulgent people. That's what it means. That means you're more of a hedonistic person now than a God-seeking person. You're just looking to seek your own pleasures. You're not seeking the things of God. See, and, and this boils down to this picture that we see here having to do with marriage and life, birth, babies, right? God has a very high value for human life. We know this. Yet the society with the lowest regards for human life are the societies that have a low regard for God or no regard for God at all. That's why the United States is sinking like a rock today. right? Because we are no longer one nation under God. Right? We're a nation that's turned its back on God. When our nation satanically disrespects marriage, when it satanically disrespects life, as in a child's life, an unborn child's life, when it satanically disrespects children with the whole gender ideology war that's happening now, right? When it satanically disrespects basic biology, right? When the UN comes out and says that pedophilia should be accepted, when we know where the battlefronts are, when the battlefronts are about abortion, when the battlefronts are about, you know, transsexuals and child mutilation, when you can't send your kids to public schools anymore because even in elementary school, they're looking to indoctrinate your children and turn them away from you purposefully. Washington State is what? One signature away from passing the law? I think only Governor Inslee has to sign it. Maybe he already has. I'm not sure. That's going to make Washington State a state that can take your children away from you. Now, right? all they have, to, if your child wants to transition and they've convinced your child to transition, no matter the age of your child, they'll now be able to take them from you and put them in a shelter away from you. You don't know where they are. You have no say in their life. That's to protect your child's rights. We're, we're, that's either already been signed or is going to be signed because it's already passed everything else. To put it mildly, that is disrespectful to God and his word. To put it mildly, that is wicked in the sight of the Lord. That's the culture we live in today. Ephesians 5, verses 3 to 8, tells us, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you. This is talking to you. Okay? This stuff shouldn't even be named among you as is proper among saints. Saints, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, okay, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. In Galatians 5, verses 19 to 21, it tells us that the acts of the flesh are obvious, we know this. 
sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, discord, jealousy, and rage, rivalries, divisions, factions, enviness, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Says, I warn you as I did before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. God's word couldn't be more clear. But people don't want to accept their word. Don't want to accept the word. They'll tell us that we're not reading it in the proper context. That we're telling us we're not, we're not translating it correctly. They'll come up with all kinds of excuses to, to twist this around so they can justify their sin or their sinful behavior or their sexual immorality and to tell you that what they're doing is correct and it's okay and it's honorable. It's not. But what do we do? Well, for us, we walk as children of light. That's what we do. We don't become partners with the sons of disobedience, as it says. We walk humbly before our God. And we don't deceive ourselves. Don't believe your own propaganda. You know what I mean by that? Don't believe your own propaganda. Because we'll often tell ourselves that we're right about things. About our sins. It's okay. Don't worry about it. We're, we're good. But God's like, don't believe your own propaganda. Believe my word. Right? Walk humbly before me. I mean, if you've got a problem, if you've got a sin, you admit it. You surrender it. You give it to God. You repent. You turn away from it. You fight it with all that God has given you to fight it. You don't just continue to live in it and say it's okay. Matthew 16, 24 tells us that if we were to follow Jesus, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That doesn't mean you continue to live in your sin. That means you sacrifice it. You give it to God. So what do we do? We quit capitulating to the culture. That's what we do. We quit capitulating to the culture. It'll be our downfall. It'll be the downfall of your family. It'll be the downfall of your kids if you continue to capitulate to the culture. The culture of evil spreads easily. Therefore, compromise becomes a standard of living. We don't want compromise to be a standard of living. Don't compromise. So we got, there's a quote from A.W. Tozer that says this, we must stop negotiating with evil. We Christians must stop apologizing for our moral position and start making our voices heard exposing sin for the enemy of the human race, which it truly is. Right? You want to know what the problem is today? It's sin. You want to know what the problem is today? It's evil. You want to know what the problem is today? It's satanic. Is it guns? No, guns aren't the problem. Right? Is it drugs? Drugs aren't the problem. These things are part of the problem, but they aren't the problem. The problem goes back beyond that. The problem is sin and evil and it's satanic. And it's Satan. And it's Satan wanting to destroy those who are created in the image of God. So he's confusing them. He's making think that boys are girls and the girls are boys and that they can just go ahead and, and, and demonically change their figures and go through these surgeries. He's confusing everything about their identity and who they are and how God created them to be. That's a satanic. And what's coming from that is depression. And what comes from that is drug use. And what comes from that is suicide. And what comes from that is violent acts. But it comes back to Satan's work. So we have to quit capitulating to the culture. We have to stop negotiating with evil. We must stop apologizing for our moral position and start making our voices heard, as Tozer said, exposing sin for the enemy of the human race that it is. But remember this. This is one of the great things this chapter shows us. Overall. It's this. God's sovereignty. That's what this chapter shows us. Okay? God's ultimate authority, God's ultimate supremacy over all things. 
right? Even in our disobedience, even in our immorality, as it were, God's plan will not be overthrown, right? It will not be canceled. It will not be defeated. You can't stop it. So even though it wasn't God's will for Judah to go marry a Canaanite woman, and even though it wasn't God's will for these things to happen in the way that they did, God's will was seen. (laughs) He worked out his plan. He said, this is not right. It was evil and wicked in the sight of the Lord. He stopped it on that spot. We don't see that all the time throughout the Bible, but we do see it throughout. This is not the first time that God will do something like this. Even in the New Testament, with those in the church, God will just drop them dead on the spot. But it's God's ultimate supremacy over all things. God's word will stand. What God says will stand. And even these attempted satanic diabolical acts by the sons of Judah, even though they might not have been aware of what they were trying to do, God said, no, I'm not going to let this stand. Judah is going to be a line that the Christ comes from. And this line will go. I will see it through. Even if I have to have Judah impregnate Tamar to get it done. She will get the kids that she deserves and my line will grow. God's sovereignty. It's his ultimate authority. And the other thing we see in that is a fantastic example of God's grace. Of God's grace. It's a wonderful example of God's grace because God did not choose Judah by his works, by his supposed righteousness. He chose him by his grace. God did not choose Tamar right, by her works, but by his grace. He, he chose them despite their works, really, right? In spite of what they did, despite their sin, despite their immorality. Was Judah righteous? Judah was not righteous. Did Judah think he was righteous? Yes, he did, right? But we aren't either. We're not righteous either, but yet often we think we are, right? But we're not, not in our flesh. And it doesn't take for much for us to understand that we need Jesus that we are sinners in the need of Jesus. Jesus will make that painfully aware to us, kind of like ripping a Band-Aid off a wound. That's how he likes to do it often. You want to know how you need me? Ah, that's how much you need me right there, right? He'll make it painfully aware to you. But we are experts at self-justification and self-righteousness. We are. We're really good at it. Yet it's an abomination to God. So quit trying to justify your sin. You can't rewrite scriptures to justify your sin and get away with it. Don't continue to live in sin and assume it's acceptable just because all your neighbors do it or that the culture accepts it or that the world accepts it. Listen, don't put any confidence in your flesh at all. None. Knock off the self-righteous indignation because it says that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. We only survive by putting our confidence in Christ Jesus. He is our righteousness. And we are justified by his grace, as it tells us, as a gift through the redemption right, that is found in Christ Jesus. That's the only thing. That's why we need Jesus and his grace. Amen? 
Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this word. I thank you for this message. And I pray, Lord, that you just continue to speak it to us and continue to help us live it out. Lord, I pray that you just help us continue just to turn to you, to repent, turn away from our sins, and live a life worthy of your calling. I pray, Lord, that we just continue to glorify your name and continue to be a light in the darkness. And Lord, I pray that we stand firm, that we don't compromise with the culture. We don't have to apologize for our morals or our beliefs that are based on your word, Lord. And we just continue to point out the truth, which is that there is a satanic act trying to hurt those who are created in the image of God, but there is hope found in Christ Jesus. Evil is the problem. Sin is the problem. But Jesus is the answer. So we thank you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.